Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1977 Peter Weir film, The Last Wave. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, this was a movie that even over the course of this week has grown on me uh, in lots and lots of ways. I was in a meeting with you yesterday and I came up to you and said, I can't stop thinking about it, uh, <laughs> which I think is, I think, which I think speaks well of this film. Um, what was your history with watching this film? So this comes out 44 years ago. Um, when did you first encounter this movie? I think I probably first saw it in, uh, I would say 1980, 1981. Um, I had a friend in college, uh, back before a lot of people studied abroad who wanted to get a Fulbright to go to Australia to study Australian New Wave film. So he was the person that kind of alerted me to Australian New Wave. And then I actually saw the film. There was a small, I've mentioned this before, there was a small art theater in uh, Brunswick, Maine, where I went to school for college. And uh, they showed the film there. So that was my first time. Would have been 80, 81, something like that. Do you remember your experience or feelings watching this because i will say this is a challenging movie to watch um i think and especially the so i i guess i've said this last few weeks i ended up watching this twice this week too because i watched it the first time and was just like i'm not sure what to do with what i just saw and i felt compelled to come back and why especially watch the second half over again mm -hmm. do you remember what your initial experience was like yeah, a, a whole bunch of uncertainty about exactly what had happened at the end of the film. I certainly remember that last image and really wondering, you know, was this, how much of this was actually happening, how much this was his vision. And then the other strong um, visual memory that I had of the film was the scene where he's in his car and he thinks that every, he imagines that every, that they've been completely inundated and everybody's floating around and the water is coming out of his radio. Those are sort of like the strong images that I, that I retained uh, from the first viewing. Yeah. And I will say some of those things happen fast enough that the first time through, I didn't even catch everything that was that the second time through, I was like, Oh, Wow, that actually hits me much harder knowing a little bit where uh, where this is heading. Um, we've talked about Peter Weir before. We watched uh, Peter Weir's Fearless. Um, I He's somebody where if you had asked me, do I know who Peter Weir is? I would have said, no, I don't think so. I mean, before, before we watched Fearless. And then I looked at his filmography and I realized I've actually seen a lot of movies that he made. Um, this movie's very interesting, um, especially when I think about the the films of his that I'm more familiar with, his American films. So obviously, we talked about Fearless. I've seen the Truman Show. I've I'm a, I love Dead Poet Society. That hit me at the exact right age. Um, how does a film like this sit in relationship to some? And and, and those, I mean, he actually obviously has other prominent American films as well. Like, how does his Australian films, especially something like the first or the last wave? fit in with what we see him making as an American filmmaker? That's a really good question. I, I think, and, and I have to mention, you know, the other Peter Weir Australian film that I thought of having his watch is Picnic and Hanging Rock, which came out a couple years earlier, which is very similar to Last Wave, which doesn't really answer your question because it's, uh, it's picking an Australian film that's also kind of along the same, along the same lines. Well, and that's, um, actually what I, that's actually what I was thinking about is I have not seen Picnic and Hanging Rock, but, I, but it's referenced so much when reading about the last wave that I realized, well, it seems like he was making a particular kind of film. And then maybe this is something different. Although I can see fearless connected to this in some ways, because there is this sort of, right. uh, 
questions about this kind of maybe larger spirituality we need to think about. Um, I don't necessarily see that in something like Dead Poets Society. No, but I, but I, but I think another another I think another consistent aspect of, of Weir's um, filmography is an interest in a combination of mystery and alt- and cultures different from his own. So a, a film I would actually connect this with is one, another one of his earlier Hollywood films that I think is actually his first Hollywood film is Witness uh, with Harrison Ford and Lucas, and Lucas Haas. And that, in, in my mind, fits in as a kind of um, investigation of the culture of the Amish. So I think that that's one of the, and of course it involves a mystery uh, at, at the same time. So I, so I think he's, he's interested, and you could even argue in a way that the Truman Show gives you an alternative culture, an alternative uh, uh, society that actually exists. So I think, I th- I think he's interested in different ways in which human beings organize themselves, but he's also interested in alternative perspectives on, on reality. Absolutely. Um, and, and he, there's a great, uh, on the, uh, criterion channel, there was like a 10 minute, uh, sort of interview thing with Peter Weir, where he was talking about the last wave. And he talks about conceiving of this movie in lots of ways as collisions of culture. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Cause there's, I think there's lots of places where we can see versions of that. I will say when I, first uh sat down to watch this i i read the description i don't always read the descriptions of the films because i like to just watch them but i happened to read the description of the film and it was so interesting because i when i hit play i had two thoughts in my mind both of which were subverted Mm. Um, first i thought well because it was about this lawyer and this case and i thought oh this is going to be a courtroom drama i love courtroom dramas turns out this is not a courtroom drama (laughs) There's a couple scenes that take place in a courtroom, but that's that is just the the like the setup for this journey that uh, David Burton goes on. The other thing was more something that I feared it was going to be, which is it sure it sure when you read the description, it sets up like a white savior movie, mm-hmm. you know, where where he's this person who's going to be the voice for these Aboriginal people, mm-hmm. and, and it it hard subverts that 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 when yeah. when when he encounters Chris. Uh, and has conversation with Chris. Even Chris on the stand pushes back against him and is just like, that is not the story that this is going to be. And I, that that got me really excited because um, it made me realize that I was in a different set of hands than I expected, but I was pretty excited about it. And I appreciate the fact that you alluded to the interview with Weir. I, I appreciate the fact that Weir was aware that, that this is a Western take on a different culture, that he doesn't pretend to be seeing things from the Aboriginal point of view, but more from the point of view of a Westerner recounting Aboriginal culture. Absolutely. So this, this movie has actually two great opening scenes, um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, and it, and they seem utterly unrelated other than water. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a very wet movie uh, just in general. Um, they seem really unrelated and it's really interesting to think about, especially the first scene, because the, the, the first scene is this, uh, you know, event that happens at this rural schoolhouse in, you know, what seems like a desert area. I don't really know that much about Australia. I presume the outback is pretty, pretty deserty or mm-hmm. arid. Um, and it's there, these school children playing cricket outside and it's a absolutely cloudless blue sky day. They start to hear the rumble of thunder and then this massive rainstorm comes and hailstorm comes. Um, and, uh, and so this introduces this sort of water imagery and they're kind of mesmerized by it, 
but it's also terrifying, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, I mean, I've never seen hail. They're like, it's like softball sized jagged hail falling and the teacher's trying to get the children in and trying to protect them. And you have kids who are drawn to the windows to want to watch this. Um, and uh, this, we're in that, that same interview talks about as a child being, both comforted by the sound of rain on the roof, but also scared scared of it. And this this sets that up. It also sets up this imagery, which is going to run through all of it, which is water. We're going to see water in all kinds of different ways, in places you'd expect it, and places you uh, you don't expect it. Um, so, I will say whenever I um, whenever I th- Whenever I see, I, I'm not I'm not the the uh, the smartest reader of literature and films, but whenever I see water, the first thing that comes to my mind is I think about T. S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and it's like, okay, is water something to be feared? You know, should we fear death by water, or is water a, an image of renewal? So I, mm-hmm. the, that the very first scene started with this, I was t- I was keyed into water, and I kept trying to think. What is what? What does water mean in this movie? And we see that that sort of plays out throughout this uh, throughout this film. What were your What are your thoughts on that opening scene? Well, first of all, I, I want I want to back up and say that there's there's kind of an opening scene before the opening scene, right? When the credits are rolling, there's the scene of Charlie uh, doing the painting. Oh, I forgot uh, about so, that. So, You're right. So one of the first images you actually get is that image of of, of uh, what I assume are kind of waves on the rock. Um, so, so you've got water as that as that theme from the from the very beginning. I mean, wa- water water is interesting, right? Because as you already alluded to, Sam, it's both it's both destructive and creative, right? So when it first comes down, the children are dancing around it, and this is great, right? And then it, and then it turns into something uh, dangerous, and actually, you know, ends up cutting uh, cutting one of the kids. Um, and, 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 I th- and I think about the image of water, even in, in, and not that I think there's any reference to this in the film, but I do think about the way that water functions symbolically uh, in, in, within Christianity, that the baptism is it's death, right? You go into the water to die, but you come out of the water to be reborn. And I think that water functions the same way in this film, right? The water is apocalyptic. It's the end of all things. It's, it's, it's like a, going back to Noah's flood, um, but it also is an opportunity to kind of start again, uh, to renew. Absolutely. And, and the, the next scene where we, um, I don't know if it's the next scene where we see water, but the next scene where, where I became acutely aware of it and where this movie t- felt like it turned into a horror movie for me is when they're sitting at the dining room table mm-hmm. and you start to see the water come down the stairs and it seems very mysterious. And I have twice in my life lived through massive water damage uh, in a house. And, 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 and apart from anything else about this movie that like I got scared at that moment just because I know like what it means when uh, when water sort of breaks loose inside of a controlled, mm-hmm. you know, I'm using this word intentionally in quotes, like civilized house, right? Like, like water is becomes this thing to be terrified of, even though it's something that we control normally, right? Like we have it coming through our pipes and we would think of having plumbing in your house would be uh, a sign of, again, in quotes, civilization. Um, But then, but it's like once water breaks loose of that, it becomes this destructive thing, which can tear that down. So Mm -hmm. watching it slowly come down the stairs and I just wanted somebody to notice it and it took a long time before somebody noticed it yeah it, it, it seems like that always remind me of a great annie dillard quote she says things out of place are ill 
Um, and so uh, water in the pipes is great, but water coming down the stairs is not. Yes. And, and this, this, I mean, thinking about this, uh, having some sort of horror film elements to it. I mean, I would not describe this as a horror film, but it definitely has elements to it. It led me to one of the best things that I read about this movie. So I was, I was so interested in the movie and, and confused enough by the movie that I did more reading than I normally do to, you know, to try to like get my head around what this is about. And I found a piece from June of 2020 um, from a horror website, uh, a, horror, a horror film website. Uh, the site is called What Sleeps Beneath. And the author of this piece is, uh, his name is Andy Thomas. Um, and he was writing about making the case for uh, the last wave as something which is existing in relationship to something like horror filmmaking. And he makes this really interesting distinction uh, between what he calls fright films and dread films. And he mm. says fright films are the kind of films that, um, let me just read what he says here. Uh, he says, where fright feel films ap appeal to one's instinctual sense of fight or flight through, uh, <clears throat> though the terrifying horror film, for the sake of clarity, we'll call it a dread film, attempts to upend one's sense of reason. The goal of the dread film is not to make you jump out of your seat, but to keep you on edge for days and weeks. There usually isn't an acute danger that might jump out at you. Rather, it's a fear that permeates your thoughts. The dread film wants you to come back and watch it again, not for the roller coaster ride of adrenaline, but because you feel like there was some there was an understanding in its message, a forbidden knowledge that might ease your anxiety if you could just reach out and grasp it. And I read that and thought, mm -hmm. that's exactly how I feel. And it's why I watched it again, is I just felt like if I watch it again, will I make will stuff that feels like it's presented but not presented in full somehow have more clarity to me and will ease some of the anxiety that I feel like it like that actually what to me that summed up uh elements of this of of how I thought about this film well and, and that exactly replicates David Burton's own experience right I mean he that that's his whole thing he keeps thinking that if only somebody could explain these secrets to me if only somebody could reveal what's going on uh, and uh, then then somehow i would be satisfied i would regain my equilibrium regain my, my my identity so the film simply replicates in you the experience that the protagonist is having right and that and and that's that's usually a sign of a, of a of a great piece of art to me you know in the same way we talked about memento it's kind of giving you the condition of the character mm -hmm. where it plays with your memory this puts you in the seat of david burton <laughs> um as, as as he's going through this and 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 um andy thomas goes on to to then say like it's pretty impossible to as an american at least to watch this movie and not think about the fact of how much of what we think of as our you know modern society our civilization rests on the um the destruction of these other cultures, these indigenous cultures, you know, that he says that you can't help but think that, you know, this land is land that belonged to these other cultures. And even Peter Weir says this, he says, you know, you grow up in Australia uh, being aware that this is tribal territory. He says that, you know, that those tribes are often gone, but the names of their, of what they called things like those things still kind of exist in the culture. So it's like they're, they're there around the edges of the culture, reminding you, um, reminding you that they were there. Um, and, and, you know, there's this sense that like uh, in the, 
in the film when when David is talking to the the other lawyer, and the other lawyer is just insistent that there is not urban tribal people. Mm-hmm. That and he, I mean, it's such a interesting quote because he basically says, "We have destroyed them. We have taken away their their culture. We have taken away their religion. We have taken away their song, their dance, all of those things. They're just like poor whites now. You know that that there is this sense that and and so what's interesting about this is you have that, but then the movie insists on keeping pointing up keep pointing out to you that but there actually is urban tribal people mm-hmm. and, it, and, and it's like it's like he's saying his sense is like if i just say it enough it will be true but there <laughs> is this sense that that literally lying we we see by the end of the movie literally lying underneath is this tribal society well you know the uh, the first the first scene in the courtroom also underlie underlines what you're saying uh sam in terms of uh, acknowledging that uh the white the, the the white culture has damaged, destroyed the Aboriginal culture, but then reasserting the the premise, the primacy of the white culture. So you know the the prosecutor addressing the um, the jury, he says, "Well, you know, you can't let your sympathy for the Aborigines, you know, these terrible things we've done to them. We all know that. So it's like you know, we're all bleeding heart liberals. We all know this is a terrible thing, but nonetheless." We have to uphold the law of the land, which, of course, you know, it's a clash of laws going on in the film. That, that's a key idea. So I thought it was interesting the way it's like this, this nod to our collective white guilt, but at the same time, a reassertion of the fact that we have now taken this land. Because isn't it too bad what we did to them? And that's kind of in the past, and that can't, uh, that can't influence how you think about what's going on right now. Exactly right. It takes that as, well, this has already happened, and, yeah. and, and that's not rolling back, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think the thing you said about law is so interesting um, because that was one of those moments where uh, where Weir talks about real collision of culture. And it's it, it is funny because it was a moment where I realized how um, modern Western I am, mm-hmm. because when when you hear uh, Charlie put forth, I think he's the one who first puts forth the idea and keeps insisting that um, that the law is more important than the individual. And like when you first hear that, when I first heard it, I didn't think about it. And then he says it again, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, that's not how I think about it." I, I mean, we live in we we live in this culture where the individual is so unbelievably important, and and you think about the law is there to serve the individual, and mm-hmm. you know if we think in Lockean terms, right? If our government and our laws aren't serving the um, the aren't protecting the rights of individuals, then we need to change those laws. And Charlie's coming from a absolutely opposite perspective and it's like you're watching david go again go through what you're doing which is like wait a minute really really you really the law is the thing that's more important than um more important than the individual more important than the person um and what's interesting is that was that was an idea that uh when the the actor who plays charlie uh nanji awara amagula um who is himself a aboriginal tribal leader uh and weir talks in the interview about how he he needed he needed uh nanjuara to sort of uh consent to the film and he kind of brought along most of the other actors who play the 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 aboriginal people and that he pushed for this idea he said if there was one thing he was insistent on in having in the movie was this idea that the law is more important than people. So that's one of those clashes we get. But what I love about that idea and what this movie does with a lot of things is it says it and it has you think about it, but they don't take a 
break to say, let's really explain how these things work. You're just given that statement and left to kind of sit with it and think about what that means. Well, it's an interesting way to think about the law, Sam, because we do talk in our in our society, we do talk in our democracy about the importance of the rule of law, right? The notion that we have laws and so we don't have, um, we don't rule by, we, we, we're not governed by some kind of divine fiat or some kind of will, will of the uh, of, of the president. But we do have laws. But the point being, as you already alluded to, with those those laws change. If we think a law is bad, we throw it out. If we think we need a law, we we create it. Whereas I think what um, the Aboriginal is talking about is this, the sense of um, I, I don't know if the term natural law is is the right is the right way to think about it. But it's a it's a law that comes from uh, from an agency that's and they're never clear about exactly what that is. But there's something in the natural order of things. Uh, that is more powerful than human beings. And the notion that we as human beings are ultimately, um, we ultimately must allow ourselves to be ruled. We have to be ruled by what is already established kind of before us. Um, and that's, as you said, that's a very different view, uh, view of law. I mean, and I think also embedded in that is this idea of, um, you know, and again, we can think about where we root this in the West. It's probably uh, something... That, that comes along with the scientific revolution and the enlightenment mm -hmm. is this mm -hmm. embrace of change uh, in the guise of progress where where for the Aboriginal people, it, it uh, both within the movie and outside of it, Weir is pointing out that it's like, there is this unbroken 50,000 years of the law has been the law. Like, so it is about, it is about upholding tradition and not change where where the where in the in the west there is this sort of embrace of change and that's not always been true in the west um i mean that 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 that's something where where we could look at other points uh earlier in western culture where there was this sense of either cyclical history or there wasn't this um insistence that things were progressing and changing but things were as they were uh but 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 definitely by the time we get to this film that is seems like something that's clashing as well yeah yeah, I mean, law law here is much more like like the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. You know, you just don't you you can't change that. That's just the way it is. Are there other what are other sort of uh, collisions of culture you see in this movie? Well, I was um, I was thinking about the one of the things this movie made me made me think about is it actually made me think about um, Heart of Darkness, and um, there's an interesting uh, discussion of the film that says says that. More than any other Australian director, Weir suggests the doubt beneath the surfaces of Australian culture that, quote, modern, rational, civilized, white European societies and your shadow and delusion in the mystical eyes of the Australia's original inhabitants. So I think, I think there's, there's, there's a clash of cultures in, in that sense in that um, the whole notion of dream time, the whole notion of a reality that exists in a part of our consciousness that we tend to, uh, we tend to, I know, what do we do? We, what do we do with dreams? We tend to dismiss them as the detritus of the day, or we take a Jungian approach, or we take a Freudian approach, but we rarely think of dreams as somehow connecting us to reality or to a different reality. So I think the, you know, so I think you have that classic clash of culture in that, in that respect, in that you know, we have as Westerners, we have no consciousness of dream time uh, as a metaphysical reality 
or our dreams as having any connection to reality. You know, whether our dreams are prophetic or whether our dreams are powerful or whether we can do things in our dreams. You know, there's this, there's a sequence in the film when it appears that Charlie somehow you know, enters the house at a, at a f f sort of psychically or spiritually and, and looks, at all, uh, looks at all the various objects and books. You know, that notion of having access to um, a different kind of reality through dreams, very, very different cultural uh, view. And what I liked about that in terms of the storytelling of this film is the fir uh, first time I watched it, I watched it with my daughter and the whole time I kept wondering like, what is she making of this? Because I'm confused. And it's like, is she going to hate this? Is she hating this? Because it doesn't make like, like I, 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 my my biggest fear is the movie was going to be over and she was going to ask me to explain dream time. And I was going to have to say, well, I, I think it's kind of this, but I'm not entirely sure. And it was interesting. I watched it again and I still felt like, I, okay, I like I hear what they're saying and I'm trying to make sense of it and I kind of get it. So it was interesting when Weir was talking about it, he was saying, yeah, I don't get it either. Like, like, like this is, this is a real thing because uh, one of the other things that's interesting about this movie is he says that anything that was said by, the Aboriginal people was either cleared by them or suggested by them to say, this mm -hmm. is what, this is what we should be saying. So he says like, you know, I, I've tried to understand it by talking to people like uh Nanjiwara Amagula, but he's like, I, I don't fully understand it, which made me feel better. It's like, good. Cause I don't fully understand either, but I like that, that the movie points to saying there's this bigger thing out there. And you know what? It doesn't fit within the confines of this, hour and 40 minute movie it's bigger than that we're going to do a lot with it we're going to point to it we're going to talk about it but you're not going to walk out saying well now i understand this culture and this this other way of understanding it's it's, it's bigger than that and what's interesting is he also says like you know people have tried to understand it by reading books about it things like this and i love in the in the movie how much uh, both David and his wife, and his wife especially, is constantly looking at books. Like she's trying to understand and trying to teach David about about this culture. And then you have the Aboriginal people trying to, um, well, David trying to learn from them. They're maybe not always trying to teach him because at times they're they're definitely keeping a distance between uh, between him and their culture. Uh, and that's that's those are sort of points of of uh, frustration for him. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about this movie, I love. Well, I'm going to say this sentence, and then I'll see what I think about it. I love when real life and the movies have this kind of intersection. Now, here's why I feel bad about saying that, because I find the actor uh, David Guppelil really interesting, mm -hmm. and how much his life mirrors this collision of culture. And here's where I want to walk back saying, I love when that happens, because what that meant for him is not something that I love, which mm -hmm. was like, he had a very complicated, difficult life, because mm -hmm. he was a tribal Aboriginal person who gets, who is this this phenomenal world renowned dancer who gets pulled into movies because of his skill is uh, in this, this film walkabout in I think 72, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ends up being this, you know, kind of major figure in Australian cinema. Um, but he's constantly living this double life, um, you know, where he is in these Western films and travels around the world. I was reading a little bit about him, like, that he he kind of went on a, a world tour and met all these amazing people, but it's like, but then he would also go back to his tribe and live with his tribe in that in that fashion, and mm -hmm. how much that uh, was difficult for him. I mean, his his life is a life that's marked by 
struggling with substance abuse, you know, which would, which makes sense when you think about that he is living at the intersection of this, these collisions of culture. But then you see the character of Chris also embodying that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that there is, I, I find it really powerful that, that he keeps talking. It's like, he wants to help David, but he's, but he kind of knows if I help Dave, if I help you, I'm also betraying something like I'm not supposed to share these things with you, right. but he still wants to. And then there's that scene at the end where he leaves, he leaves David at the, the, I don't know, the ruins or whatever's in that, um, in that cave. And he strips away all of his clothes as if mm -hmm. it's like, you know, these are the, the Western trappings. And it's my assumption is he's going back to somewhere where David will never see him again. And he, um, I presume he's leaving the city at that point because he feels like I can't, I can no longer stay here as part of this because I have betrayed this, um, which just made me, it was really interesting to read about the actor and how much his life has elements of that in it. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's kind of that classic dilemma, right? That he can't he can't assimilate because that would that would mean to kind of deny his tribal identity, but he's already crossed over a line, and so he can't fully he really can't fully live uh, he can't live fully in either world, and so and it's, it's hard to try to live in in, in both worlds. Um, I, I do I do want to give I do want to give a shout out to Walkabout, um, which you you mentioned a few minutes ago from 1974. Uh, that was his first film. It's a Nicholas Rogue film. Uh, Rogue is a director I really I, I really like. He's had, he had a very uneven career, um, but uh, he directed Don't Look Now, which is kind of another film of dread. Um, and uh, Walkabout, I highly recommend. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, Gopalil and uh, Jen Jenny Algooder. Um, it's a really interesting film that kind of gets you much more into the Australian outback. Uh, so we talked at the very beginning about how this movie had, I said two beginnings and you said there's actually a, another, a third beginning. So we have Charlie painting on the, the sort of ridge wall. We have this scene in the, um, at the, the, the rural school. And then we have Billy Corman uh, going through all of these tunnels and it's, in like a water treatment facility it's very like it's 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 arresting to watch it's really interesting to watch but it's one of those things where you're like i don't know who this person is i don't know what he's doing he seems to be scared and running from something but i'm not sure what and then he's he's confronted by somebody in the shadows who says uh like you have you have some of our things or something and mm -hmm. then you see the death of billy corman and that sets up the court case and all of this and, and in my mind i'm like okay well that's why that was there is to set up this court case and then you get to the end of the movie and it's like you watch that scene in reverse yes. as you watch David and uh, and Chris mm. go through that same pathway from the water treatment facility even deeper into the sewers. And, and Weir talks about how Sydney is just honeycombed with all of these different tunnels that ha that are either natural or have been dug for subways or things like this and it, you get this sense that they're branching off in these these different things so it's uh it's it's really interesting to think about how i kind of forgot about uh billy corman the first time i watched it. i forgot about that opening scene until we see david go kind of in the opposite direction right that he's he's mm -hmm. following that same path um that way uh and you know it made me think about why billy was stealing the artifacts and why we then see David starting to st steal the artifacts. And I had thoughts about this, but I'm curious, what are, what are your thoughts about why, what, what is Billy doing and what is David doing 
when he's yeah, there. Th th those are good questions. I mean, I th I think that Billy is. Um, I think he's trying to achieve um, power. I think he recognizes that the sacred objects have power, and so he wants the power associated with them. Um, David, David is David is a little harder to figure out because he's almost a tomb raider, um, and he collects these artifacts uh, that he wants to take back with him the way Billy Corman does, but he kind of loses them each step of the way. So, you know, there could be on the one hand, this urge to validate his experience, to come back and tell people, you know, look, look at what's actually really un un under underneath the city. There's a sense perhaps of reclaiming his own identity as he looks at that mask. Mm -hmm. that it's like, he's looking at his own face. Uh, and so he wants to bring this back again as kind of a, uh, as kind of a, a validation. Uh, of, of who of who he is, you know. One thing I want to mention about what he finds underneath um, that kind of gateway that he that he finds, which replicates the picture that his I think it's his grandmother standing or grandfather standing in front of back in South America. The the pattern on the top is is it's called the Mayan vision serpent serpent, hmm. uh, and it's seen as the conduit between two worlds. So much like. Uh, the passage into the dream time that vision serpent kind of stands stands for that. So I, so, so I think so. But so he's both kind of re, uh, affirming his identity, but he's also kind of playing the role of the um, of the Western Tomb Raider. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to take this stuff back and and uh, and, dem and and tell people what I found. Yeah, I, and and I, I kind of love that it's that that because he's alone, he doesn't express these thoughts at all. I don't think he says anything really mm. once, once uh, Chris leaves. Um, and, you know, I was thinking uh, kind of along the lines you're saying is that like, there is this sense where he is insistent that there are urban tribal people. Right. Right. And he keeps running into uh, white Australians who say, no, there's not. And even the, the, people who he says are urban tribal people and he knows are urban tribal people are reluctant to say it, especially not to say it publicly. So I think there is this sense of like wanting to come back and, and prove, you know, like, like I have, I have been somewhere that points to something bigger than what we are. Right. And so like now I, and if I just come back and tell you about this, you won't believe me. Even the things he sees on the wall, which seem to mm -hmm. point to, um, seem to point to his dreams, the, 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 the dream of everybody underwater and the, you know, then, and the titular last wave coming, right. That he would sound like a madman if he just came out and said this, right, so it's like, right. these are things to prove it. So it almost made me think of like the allegory of the cave in reverse, right. Instead of mm -hmm. going out of the cave and needing to prove to people what's out there, it's like, I went into the cave and I need to prove to you what's there because something is coming. Well, you know, and of course, the other really important thing that happens in the cave, or the really significant thing that we haven't talked about yet, is he may or may not have killed Charlie. Right. Um, with the stone that was in the dream that Chris held out to him. So, so another thing that is underlying the the plot of this film is this notion it isn't, it isn't engaged explicitly in the film but i think that there, there's this implication of of fate at work here which you could also call law and um you know it's, it reminds me of the george Eliot quote the character is destiny um you may not know exactly what your character is but that's what's going to determine what you do hmm. so and i have to say i should put this right out there sam i have no idea how much of what happens in the last third of the film is real and how much is happening in some kind of dream time. 
because the whole thing when he goes back to his house, is that really his house? Is that really happening? His daughter is there and then she's not. She says, mom's upstairs and she's not there. And what is Chris doing leading him through the sewer when presumably Chris is in jail? Right. So, so the, to, to me, it's like the turn in, um, in a David Lynch film. It's like the turn in Eraserhead. At some point, Eraserhead becomes unmoored from reality. It happens in Mulholland Drive as well. At some point, you, you've, you've kind of crossed this invisible line between what's, quote, really happening and what may be in somebody's head or what may be happening in another dimension altogether. So I don't know if Charlie's really there. I don't know if he really kills Charlie. I, I, I have, to be frank, I have absolutely no idea. I'm glad that you brought up Lynch because that was one of the questions I had was like, is there an element that you like about this movie because it has some some of those types of elements where you're like, what? Just, like where, where it seems like it starts in a real place and moves to something that's uh, not fully explained, but you have to kind of reckon with as a viewer. Yes, and I, and, and, I, and I love that kind of undecidability because then it is its own message. If you if you if you want to if you want to uh, help people understand that there may be a very thin line between what you think of reality and what you think is a, a different reality or natural and supernatural, films like this exactly prove that because you say to yourself, wait a minute, how did I get here? I mean, I can't remember the the segue from him. I can't remember exactly what the scene is before he shows up at the house again. I'd have to go back and sh and, and check on that. But how, however it happens, it happens so seamlessly that I have no trouble, uh, I, that I don't see a break. And then right. all of a sudden I say to myself, you know, where am I? Is that owl really outside there? Is Charlie really out there? I mean, it's a film that wants to constantly force you to question, to, it forces you to ask a question to which there is no straightforward answer. And that is in fact, one of the points that they're trying to make. Yep. And, and it inserts enough of the weird dream logic early where you're that that's what makes it feel seamless is, you know, at first you're like, well, that seemed a little strange, but there's been strange stuff in this movie. And then all of a sudden you realize it never got not strange. And and you have to sort of reckon with when did, when did I get off? When, when did we get off the rails on that? I, I, I love that one, uh, one last relationship that I want to talk about. Cause I found, I find um, this interesting is, um, David talking with, I think it's his stepfather, right? Mm -hmm. is that the, the, the vicar is his stepfather. Yeah. And the first time he's, he's taught, he's talking about dreams and his, and, and the stepfather says like, Oh, do you not remember though? When you had dreams, he's like, I remember them, but I don't remember what the dreams were. And you could tell the stepfather was hiding something from him. Cause he's like, mm -hmm. Oh, the usual stuff, ghosts and monsters. And you're like, no, that's not it, but you're not going to tell him. Um, and, and then when he comes back later and, and they meet again and, and he, I, I, I don't have the words down that he says, but he says something to his stepfather, I think also speaking to Western religion, mm -hmm. saying like, you, you killed all the mysteries. Mm -hmm. And then, and his response is something like my life's been about nothing but mysteries. Yeah. And I find that exchange, which they didn't, they don't go any further into it, but like, that's really interesting. And then we find out that David's childhood dreams were premonitions that he mm -hmm. actually dreamed mm -hmm. about his mother's death. And then it happened kind of the way he dreamed about it. And then that makes us think about the other dreams we see him having, including the people drowning in the city. And it's right. like, well, if, if you've had premonitions before, is this saying something about where this is heading? Right. Which is why at the end, that last vision of that, of that enormous wave, whether it's, 
actually happening at that time or not. And I think it's not happening at that time, but it, it is in fact, we, we assume kind of a genuine premonition and it lines up with the waves that he's just seen uh, in the cave. And, and also um, some of the artwork uh, in, in the house. Um, if you go back and you kind of take a closer look at that, there's a, one of the pieces of art is the, uh, it's a very famous um, Japanese print, the great wave off Kanagawa. Uh, that's actually one of the pieces of art in the background of the house. So everything points to the fact that this that this wave is is coming. So whether it's coming right then or coming in the future, it's definitely coming. Do you have a sense of how this movie was received when it came out? It didn't do. Uh, I know that it didn't do as well as um, as Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, it did get an American release, but under a different title. It was um, called Black Rain in America. Yeah, Black Rain, which is awful title. Um, I, th I yeah, I, you know, it's one of those films, Sam, that it's close enough to art house, mm -hmm. you know, that I because because the very issues you talked about earlier, it's hard to say what the genre is. Um, and there weren't film a lot of films like this being made in the seventies. The seventies was a very different kind of de kind of decade, so uh, it didn't it didn't do particularly well. Although it did have Richard Chamberlain. Uh, a, a, you know, an American cast in the lead role. Um, and, and Weir cast him because he kind of liked his angular features. And of course, he was a hot heartthrob at the time. Turns out Chamberlain actually has some Native American ancestry. I'm not sure how much, but he did seem to me a really good choice uh, for the mm -hmm. role. Absolutely. Um, when Weir comes and starts doing American movies, we talked about how he still looks at these sort of collisions of culture, things like this. Does he ever go to these in in these interesting directions like this though i mean like the 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 lynchian parts of this do we do you see that in any later things that he does or is that yeah, a product nothing, of his early not nothing i've seen because you know the the truman show is such set up like such an explicit allegory um you really can't see that as going in in the direction of mystery so no i don't think he ever does anything quite quite like this as i would say the closest thing might be witness or fear or well, fearless to a certain degree that's true i, I think may, maybe fearless is the closest thing you think about those images of um uh when uh jeff bridges is make making all those pictures of purgatory or hell or whatever it is that's that's probably the closest thing where he kind of comes back to this theme um, are there other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, I, I just want to loop back to a connection I made a, a, a little while ago. The idea that um, the that we suggest that the surface of culture is a mere shadow and, and a delusion uh, in the mystical eyes of the original inhabitants. So you know, ab aborigine is simply from the Latin aborigine, which is from the beginning. And it made me think a little bit about um, a little bit about Conrad's Heart of Darkness, of course, this this notion that um, that uh, Western culture, Western civilization is, um, you know, for, for Conrad, it's a veneer over something that, to be frank, he sees as kind of savage and scary. Uh, I think what we're looking at instead is that it's a surface that prevents us from seeing uh, a deeper reality. Um, so in that sense, it's it has a a little bit of a relationship to say a, a Hindu uh, view view of the world. Uh, not that not that the world itself is illusion, but that there's more to the world than what we see uh, on the surface. And so for the Aborigines, as Chris tells in one point, a dream a dream is a shadow of something real. So you kind of get this notion of, of there's real there's there's what's real and then there's what's really real. 
And so I think that's that's one of the ways in which the in which this film kind of suggests that, you know, the reality that we deal with is not all that reality actually is. But the, but those realities are related to each other. And that at some point that alternative reality breaks into this world through some kind of apocalyptic uh, event, which is also both a death and a renewal, as we talked about earlier. Breaks through like water breaking into a house, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I loved this movie. And I would say, um, if you're listening to this, and for some reason you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, it's worth it. And it's it is a it is a more challenging movie than I think some of the other some other things we've watched are pretty easy watches. I think this one for me was a was a tougher watch, um, but I really really loved it. And um, to go back to what um, Andy Thomas said that you know that it's one of those movies that just st- stuck with me, and I can't get images from this movie out of my head i can't get ideas from it out of my head and it's it's one of those things where the second that i saw it it started intersecting with other things i started to see in uh see in life so i I saw i watched this on saturday night and the next day i went to church on sunday and our pastor started his sermon by talking about how everywhere we're standing is native american tribal land and it was just like oh my goodness <laughs> like i was just i was i've just been thinking about this all day and then i go to church and the first thing i hear is that to to set off into this sermon and it's just like and i just started to feel like these kind of resonances and and mirrors reflecting back um and 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 i i do think you know it's it, this is one of those interesting movies because because it's australian and it is very australian like this is definitely not like it, i feel like it's definitely placed there the relationship with Aboriginal people is different than, it's not necessarily the same as uh, Americans' relationship with uh, Native American people. But it does make so. What so I like about it is there's this kind of distance from it, so I can think about that a little bit as if it's this. It's not exactly my story, but then it also forces me to think about my story and what is what is my version of this, mm-hmm. and what are the ways that I ignore or mask. Um, over those things or what or the way I use my Western rationality to put confines on my understanding of the world and say like, well, of course, this is how we understand the world. Um, I'm all, I always love things that make me realize how um, not just Western, but like modern Western I am like post-scientific revolution, enlightenment Western I am. Mm-hmm. I love because I love things that poke holes in that and say, well, you're that because of your culture, not because that is all that there is. Right. Um, right. And and this this movie, I think, accomplishes that really well in a setting that, for me, as a 21st century American, is distant enough that I that it's not slapping me in the face with saying this is you. But by the time you get to the end, you realize this is you too. Yeah, and 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 I and I guess you know one thing one thing one thing I take away from it, Sam, is I I love the idea that um, dreams actually have significance, um, and there are cultures, there are South American cultures, in fact, where the dream life is considered just as important as the waking life. And if you think about it, think about all the amount of time you spend sleeping and, and dreaming and just kind of ignoring it. And so I love the idea that you know maybe we should pay attention to dreams. In fact, I had a dream a few months ago that. I ended up sharing with my brother because he was in it and he said, wow, that's, I mean, we actually established something about our relationship through the dream. It was, it was, it was, that's very special. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, it's a, it's the, it's a classic joke in, uh, uh, in, in culture that like the thing is 
the the most boring thing to listen to is someone talk about their dreams. Yeah, talk exactly. about your own dreams are in, but it's like maybe that's the wrong. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe we should, you know, maybe we should want to hear those things. Maybe we should pay more attention to those things because you're right. Like, uh, you know, a, a third of our life is spent in that world. We don't spend a third of our life doing anything. No, but a third no. of our life is spent there, and we don't. Uh, whether that's you know dream time or whether that's just exploring a different part of our of our minds we it still seems like something we should be paying more attention to well i mean kurosawa's penultimate film is called dreams and it was based on a bunch of his dreams so you can watch that and decide whether or not his dreams are boring that's right uh so what do you have for us for next week well you know i i, I thought i was going to do one thing next week and then i was watching the film and i thought this this is a a bizarre connection um there's so much time spent in the sewers of sydney uh, that I decided we we had to go to the sewers of Vienna. Uh, so I, I want to watch The Third Man uh, next week. Uh, Carol uh, Carol Reed's great film from 1948 with Joseph Cotton and, uh, and Orson Welles. I'm so excited because this is a movie I've always wanted to watch and for some reason never seen. Uh, and I know, I know a lot of people who adore this movie. So I'm very, very excited to watch this. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you'll be disappointed. I think the key thing is how you feel about the zither. Um, uh -huh. my wife cannot stand the film because of the zither. Uh, so either you, either you buy into the zither or, or you will be tormented for an hour and a half. <laughs> All right. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this movie. And I say this every week, but for having this conversation, because if this is a movie I just watched in a vacuum and then didn't spend any more time with. I don't think I would appreciate it on the level that I do. Um, I don't often have my daughter listen to a video store, but I kind of want her to listen to this one because I, I still want to talk with her more about what her experience with this movie was. And I think um, I think this on this conversation unpacks a lot of the stuff that definitely I was thinking about um, after having spent some time with the movie. So thank you so much for that. Um, we will be back next week to talk about the third man in the video store.